Good morning. Good. Yes, the goodness of our Lord. Um, I have a few prayer requests this morning, but I'll give you the scripture. We're going to be on page 1391 in 1 Peter chapter 1. So page 1391. While you're turning there, a couple of prayer requests we have this morning. Bill and Kathy are not here. They received a call in the about midnight last night that his mother was going to be placed in the hospital. She is having uh, some difficulties and not doing very well. For one thing, she has very large kidney stones that are trying to pass, and so she's in a lot of pain. But they're also doing some testing to see if she might possibly possibly have had a stroke. So we want to keep Carolyn in our prayers and Bill and Kathy as they travel to the Metroplex and that God's wisdom would be with them as they journey through this time. And then their little grandson, Gabriel, had uh, surgery on Friday and is home and doing pretty well. Um, Because of the surgery on the lip, it's hard for him to eat. And so being six months old, sucking on a bottle is a little difficult, but um, Kathy said and gave a report to Rebecca this morning that he drank four ounces earlier, and so that was a great praise. So um, we'll just keep little Gabriel in our prayers that God would continue to work through this challenging time for him as well. And then uh, last of all, Linda has a pretty severe headache this morning and wasn't feeling well still. She's been sick for several weeks with uh, upper respiratory so we just want to continue to pray that God would bring her into uh, a restored health and back into fellowship so let's read in our scripture reading today first Peter chapter 1 verse 15 and 16 verse 15 says but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written be holy for i am holy and then i want to read also as down at the bottom uh, chapter 2 verse 9 it says but you are chosen i'm sorry but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. So, Father God, we come before you, Father, recognizing this call of coming to be set apart, to be holy because you are holy. So, Lord, I pray that our hearts as we come this morning would stand in a place of recognizing your holiness and your call because you have called us to be holy, to be a chosen generation, to be a royal priesthood, Lord, that would glorify your great name. Lord, we miss those that are not here today. You hear the cry of our hearts for each one of these, that, Lord, you would be with Bill and Kathy as they go, that, Father, in this place, that you would give them their, your wisdom to know what their decisions need to be in this place with, their, with Bill's mom. And, Lord, we pray that she would see 
and know you in a deeper way as they come and minister to her today. And Lord, I pray that you would put your hand upon Gabriel and that this uh, surgery would just be a reflection of your perfection and your love for this child and that you would continue to complete what you have begun. And Lord Jesus, we um, lift Linda up to you. She has been sick for so many days. And Lord, we are uh, sad that she is not in our fellowship and, and we know she is longing to be back here. So we ask that you would restore her body that you would bring her into complete healing, that she could be back with your people. Lord, we do want to hear your word today. We want to be moved by your spirit. So, Lord, we ask that your spirit would move in this place and it would draw out your truth out of Daniel's words, that we would hear only the truth of your word and that every word would draw us into being a people set apart for your great name. Lord, be glorified, and it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Yeah. 
song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. With all King of kings, you are my everything, and I will adore you.
Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all today, and um, I am so grateful that the Lord has given us a message that I am confident um, is, um, is for His glory. So if you would join me, we will begin today in Luke chapter 2, if you're in the church's Bible, Luke chapter 2 on page 1181. So my birthday was a few weeks ago. I'm, don't worry, I'm not looking for any uh, belated birthday attention or anything. Um, it was a, an amazing birthday. Um, probably one of my favorite memories was that um, on that morning I was in my, my kind of work office and I was studying and enjoying a cup of coffee. And um, as Abigail often does when she woke up, she sings. But this day, she was practicing her rendition of Happy Birthday to You. I couldn't really hear what she was saying, but I found out later that she had added some of her own words. So that's kind of one of the things that I woke up to. And it was a great day because um, I was celebrated. Rebecca had some amazing gluten-free treats for me, and I had a special lunch. Um, It was an amazing day spent being celebrated by my girls. Over the last several years, my perspective on birthdays has changed. As I've grown older, as I've become a husband and a father, uh, the attention and the things that I want in a birthday has just changed. Now, it was a great day. Uh, I don't want to take away from that. I I received some great gifts. Uh, Abigail gave me from the family budget, of course, not from hers, a 3D pen that we've done some crafting with, and great to spend time with her. Um, Rebecca got me a really great neck massager, which is probably good for me and for her because it helps relieve some of the stress of the workday. But what I think I have cherished the most is time spent with my girls that is not earmarked for something else, that's not quickly taken away and um, diminished by other priorities. There are two things that I guess I want to to share about this. And one is that as I have matured, my priorities have changed. As I become a husband and a father, the things that matter most to me have changed. And the second is that for Rebecca and Abigail, their attention to detail for the things that matter to me, special gluten-free treats, and things that they know that would matter to me and that I would enjoy. I've been thinking a lot, of course, during the last few weeks about the celebration of Jesus' birthday and this idea of Christmas. It seems completely ridiculous, I know, but I wonder what Jesus would think about celebrating his birthday. Would Jesus have wanted a new carpenter's hammer as a gift? Would Jesus have wanted his favorite meal of fishes and loaves for dinner? 
would Jesus have wanted the whole family to come together? You know, his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas. Would he have wanted his aunt Elizabeth and uncle Zachariah and cousin John the Baptist to travel in? Would this be what Jesus would be thinking of? Probably not at all. We know as we study for several years about the pagan roots associated with the celebration of Christmas, that birthdays were really not celebrated at all other than pharaohs and emperors and pagan gods. And from everything we know about Jesus, even as a boy, it seems preposterous that these would be the types of things that he would treasure. One of the earliest stories in scripture describes a 12-year-old Jesus who was in Jerusalem with his parents for Passover. Joseph and Mary, after Passover was done, began to return to Nazareth and assumed that Jesus was on the caravan with them. But Jesus had stayed behind, sitting among the teachers and the temple. I want to read what happens after when Jesus and Mary and Joseph are reunited again. So let's read in Luke chapter 2, verses 48 and 49. So when they saw him, this is Jesus' parents, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus' response to his concerned parents who thought maybe they had lost him completely was to demonstrate what he would begin to demonstrate in every situation in his lifetime. His heart's desire. You see, from birth, Jesus' heart was set on eternal things, not worldly things. This holiday called Christmas, celebrating the so-called birth of Jesus, is the ultimate example of worldliness that we can see. It is nothing holy, redeeming, or even compatible with the life of Jesus, with his death and resurrection unto our salvation. This time of year that we're in right now is indeed filled with the spirit of Christmas, which brings a false sense of enjoyment and satisfaction, much like winning on a slot machine at a casino. This gratification is temporary and it is inadequate. At the same time, this spirit brings destructive feelings of loss and emptiness like going broke on the same slot machine. This spirit knows no bounds and it seeks destruction for those who celebrate this pagan holiday and those who do not. So today, if we have come to this time of year caught off guard, apathetic, or even fatigued, the Lord has a word for us. The Lord's desire is to clarify and strengthen us, not just against this holiday of Christmas, but against a spirit that is seeking our destruction. So today we're going to talk about some longtime enemies of God's people. 
the Amalekites. You'll remember the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, and Esau and his people have been in conflict with God's people since the very beginning. It's important to understand that their conflict was more than just physical con- combat, but it was a spiritual war. So we're going to look at two different passages that give us very different perspectives on the same situation. So when the Hebrews were leaving Egypt, you'll remember that they had a great battle with the Amalekites as they tried to leave and journey towards the promised land. And so that's the story we're going to begin with. So we're going to look at two passages in scripture at the same time. So first, if you would turn to Exodus 17 on page 80. Exodus 17 on page 80. Once you get there, place your finger there, and we're going to add another passage that we're going to flip back and forth to. So Exodus chapter 17 on page 80, and then move over a few pages to Deuteronomy 25 on page 230. Deuteronomy 25 on page 230. So as we said, the the story that we're reading about is a pivotal story in Israel's memory. God had delivered them out of Egypt, out of the hands of slavery, out of bondage under Pharaoh. And as God is doing this, they encounter a war with an old foe. An old foe whose name to them was as old as time, their arch nemesis from Esau. So let's read first in Exodus. We'll read verses 8 through 16 of chapter 17. Reading in verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to Aaron. Excuse me. So Joshua did as Moses... Let me start again in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. So it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So to summarize what we've just read here, 
the Amalekites fought Israel. Moses went and stood on a high place on top of a hill much like this with the staff in his hand that God had given him. Others supported Moses' hands to keep them up and strong because when Moses got tired, when he got weary, when he lowered his hand, when his strength was gone, the Amalekites would begin to defeat the Israelites. But when Moses got his hand back up, when he regained his strength, Israel was victorious. So Joshua, who was leading the Israelites' army, defeated the Amalekites with the sword is what we read. It is said that they should remember this as a memorial, that God would blot out the Amalekites from heaven. Finally, it said that the Lord would have war with Amalek, with these people from generation to generation. Okay, now flip your finger, uh, keep your finger here, and turn over now to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're going to read just verses 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way, attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and did not, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So to summarize what we've just read here, Amalek will attack or attacked from the rear. It says that he came against the tired and weary because they did not fear God. And finally, it, it says that when the Lord has given you rest, has given the Israelites rest, when they make it to the promised land, that the Lord will blot out Amalek from heaven. Now, these two passages that we've just read are about the very same situation. Yet, these accounts are a little different. They each say that there was a, ma a battle between these two groups, between the Amalekites and Israel. They both say that there's a commandment to remember this situation and not forget it. They, they all say, they both say that there will eventually be a blotting out, a destruction of the Amalekites by God and by Israel. But they're also very different accounts of the same story. I think there's a reason for this because as we read different stories in scripture, there are many that are in the same place. There are stories in Samuel that are also in Kings, that are also in Chronicles. We read of things that took place of the Old Testament by the New Testament writers who describe them with their perspective. See, in Exodus, the very book of Exodus is focused on the theme of escape and deliverance. And that's what the focus is on the account in Exodus. That yes, there was a battle, but that Moses raised his hand with a staff and that God ultimately delivered them from the hands of the Amalekites. But the book of Deuteronomy is, is, a, is a book that's name means second law. 
It means that before the Israelites went into the promised land, that God wanted to remind them of all the things that he had done to say, don't forget my law, don't forget my commandments, don't forget that you have been delivered for a purpose. Lest you go into the promised land and get comfy and comfortable and forget my ways and return to sin. In Deuteronomy, the account is a different one. It is a theme of warning. Before going to the promised land, they are reminded of what God has done. And so they're reminded when the Amalekites attack them from the rear. Something that we don't read about in the first account in Exodus. So if you've got your fingers here, let's read a couple places again in Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, we'll read verse 18. Well, let's read 17 and 18 together. In 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear the Lord. The last part of verse 18, it says he, but it's actually plural. So we should understand it to say, they did not fear the Lord. This is not the Israelites, but the Amalekites. To say this happened because the Amalekites were not afraid of our God. We often read these verses with a somber tone, right? As if the Amalekites were gutless soldiers who attacked defenseless soldiers. Does that sound right? We read it and go, oh, these dirty birds, the Amalekites, how dare they sneak up on their enemy and attack them? Perhaps there's some truth to that, but we should be asking, why are the soldiers defenseless? This verse paints a very crucial picture to understanding this battle. The reason the Amalekites did not fear God is in the first part of this verse. They didn't just attack the rear. Any military commander would actually say that's a strategic move. They attacked the stragglers. Those who were barely moving. Those who were worn out and tired. They attacked those in charge of rear security. See, Israel wasn't just a convoy that was just moving bodies. They were a unit. They were to be on guard. They were to be warriors. And those at the rear of any military unit are those charged with the greatest, the greatest thing to protect the rear, to not let anyone infiltrate that unit. Those charged with rear security had become stragglers, They'd become tired. They'd become weary. What's more, the first phrase here in verse 18 that we read, how he met you on the way. This phrase can have a variety of meanings in the Hebrew. One of them conveys a cold temperature like ice, as if the Israelites had cooled off. They were warm-blooded. They were hardcore They were defending this army until they weren't. They got tired and weary and they cooled off. They were boiling hot and they became lukewarm. 
That's why they were attacked, because they were cooled off and they let their guard down. I don't believe that this memory is just that the Israelites wouldn't forget and want vengeance for their lifetime, but that they wouldn't forget how their ancestors cooled off, let their guard down, and let the enemy infiltrate their ranks. The Exodus passage, turn there with me to Exodus 17. The Exodus passage, I believe, says the same things about the spiritual nature of this battle. In chapter 17, in verse 9, we read, it says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. We read of something not done elsewhere in Scripture in terms of battle. See, when we read this, what Moses is saying is, okay, we're in a battle now. They have infiltrated our camps. This isn't the start of it. This is after things have began. And Moses shrewdly has some spiritual understanding that they are not going to win merely by going out to fight, but that they, he should seek high spiritual ground just like the spiritual ground he would find on Mount Sinai, that he would take what God had given him in this staff and that the Lord would give them strength as they depended on the Lord. In verse 11, similar to the soldiers who were weary on the rear guard, Moses became tired. I don't know about you, but if I lifted my hands for any amount of time, they would become weary and weak. And likewise, Moses' arms were weary and weak, but he remained steadfast. And Aaron and Hur didn't give up, but they supported him. They surrounded him. They strengthened him. And the Lord gave victory in this battle. Then in verse 14, the Lord tells Moses to recount this to Joshua, right? Joshua is on the front line. He is the commander in charge that's been sent with the sword. The Lord tells Moses, you've got to write this down and not forget it. You've got to tell Joshua what happened, that while Joshua was down there battling in the flesh, you were battling in the spirit, and the Lord gave victory. So finally, Moses builds an altar in order to praise the Lord and not forget what had just happened. Turn with me next to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 is on page 327. First Samuel 15, page 327. Over 350 years has passed since Israel was attacked by the Amalekites. And the animosity between Israel and the Amalekites only grew stronger and more intense. The passage that we're going to read now revolves around King Saul and King Agag. Agag was the current leader of the Amalekites. King Saul was already on spiritually thin ice, so to speak. He, he had a, a problem with authority. God's authority and anyone God would appoint to speak to him. So he was on the outs with the Lord's priest and prophet Samuel because he continued to do his own thing like offering sacrifices to the Lord 
which was a place reserved for the priesthood. So we're going to read here in 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 9. Read with me. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed." So let's, let's kind of understand what we've just read here. Saul had been given a word from the Lord. That's a pretty good start to anything, isn't it? To receive a word directly from the Lord through his servant Samuel, giving him instruction on exactly what to do. So often that's what we want. We want a word from the Lord, but sometimes we're given a word from the Lord and we don't want to follow it exactly the way it's been given. We want to insert ourselves in our opinion. The Lord wanted Saul and the army to destroy their centuries-old enemy. He wasn't just sending them out to war with anyone. He was sending them out to destroy their centuries-old enemy and fulfill prophecy. Saul was the one that was given this great privilege to complete the word of the Lord, to go to battle with their enemy. So Saul had a word not only to do this, but he had a word of victory. He had a word that he would be the one who would fulfill this understanding in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy that the Lord was going to blot out this enemy for what they had done. No one would have misunderstood what was being asked what to do. Saul should have been elated at this opportunity. So what happens is that they were told to utterly destroy and not spare. See, both sides of this are given so as to give perfect clarity. Utterly destroy, and Saul, if you don't understand that, it means to not spare anyone or anything. So Saul gathers the army of 210,000 foot soldiers, well, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah, but 210,000 total soldiers, and they attack the Amalekites. So everything's going well, but in verses 8 and 9, it gets really confusing. 
all the people were destroyed by the edge of the sword, except King Agag was kept alive. Verse 9 says that they did the exact opposite of what was previously commanded in verse 3. It says that they spared. The same word is given to say that none other than the opposite of the Lord's commandment was done. Verse 9 says why. It says that they were unwilling. Several times I have read this passage. I have studied this story. And it seems pretty consistent with Saul's character, doesn't it? It seems consistent that he has his own way. That he wants to be the hero. That he's prideful, controlling, and selfish, etc., etc. But knowing what Saul knew, knowing what we know, how could he not destroy Agag? I mean, really think about this. Even if Saul just wanted to be rebellious, this is his sworn enemy. This is the chance they've all been waiting for. Not just to be close enough to go to battle with them, but to be given a word that the enemy will be given into your hand. Would Saul really spare Agag out of spite? That just doesn't make sense. Maybe kill Agag and keep the spoils. Wouldn't agree with it, but some more sense would be made of killing your enemy and at least keeping the spoils. What I've seen as I've studied this is that just because the Lord told Saul to do it, Just because the Lord told Saul you're going to go to battle didn't mean there wouldn't be a spiritual battle. In fact, because the Lord told Saul to do it, there would be a spiritual battle. See, when the Lord speaks to us, that is when the greatest spiritual battles come. It's not just for our defeat, it's not just for our destruction but it's so we won't remain willing and aligned with the Lord. As I've been thinking about this story the last few days, it's like I can imagine this battle taking place. And there is Saul out on the battlefield doing what has been commanded and warring and killing the enemy. And then he stands before his arch enemy, Agag. And it's as if his countenance changes. He falls prey to the power of the spirit brought by Agag. It's as if Saul comes under a spell. I believe that the spiritual battle over Agag and the Amalekites was far more than we can fathom by reading these words. I believe that this only intensified from Moses and Aaron and her to the time of Saul. The difference is those men were willing to battle and Saul was not. Saul was willing to go to physical battle 
but not spiritual battle. This is not to give Saul a pass for his actions, but I believe that Saul was not convinced in his own mind when he went into this battle and he was spiritually swayed to keep Agag alive. I believe then he convinced these soldiers that were surrounded and hearing Samuel's word and knew what was required of them and would be thinking, why would we spare our enemy? Why would we come against the word of the Lord? But Saul, bewitched in his own mind, receiving of this evil spell, receiving of this evil spirit, coming under its authority, then convinced them to do the same, and they did. You see, it was more than a matter of sparing or destroying. It was a matter of willingness to do what the Lord commanded in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. Saul's lack of spiritual recognition, his passive attitude, his pride, his arrogance led him to be off guard. Like those at the rear of Israel, his defenses were down. He was cooled off and he'd surrounded himself by men who were not holding up his hands spiritually. From there, things only get worse for Saul. He argues with Samuel, and he attempts to rationalize what he'd done. In verse 13, we read that he lies and tries to say that he had done what God had commanded. He pleads with Samuel and says, oh, I've done exactly what God called me to do. In verse 15, he tries to say that they, they disobeyed for a purpose, that they spared the best animals to sacrifice to the Lord. This week, as I have been studying about Christmas, about the evil and pagan origins, about the traditions of man and of gods, about the schemes of this holiday, it is overwhelming and devastating. There is just so much background and history to the influence that is present today. So I asked the Lord what his message and understanding for us today would be. I heard this phrase, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. You're probably familiar with this phrase that's been coined by the American poet Emily Dickinson. It's been made popular by music and movies and writers of all kinds. This phrase is used to explain or justify behavior that is confusing and disturbing to others. It's essentially the trump card or get out of jail free card to say, I have no choice, my heart is made up. As if we have no control of what is in our heart. This was exactly where Saul was. His heart was made up long before he went into battle with the Amalekites. Long before the instruction came from the Lord. Long before he stood before Agag. When the intense spiritual battle came, he was easily influenced. 
Sadly, I believe this is the deep down explanation for many when it comes to celebrating Christmas and continuing on in sins against the Lord. A frustrated defense is given. The root is their right or prerogative because the heart does what it wants. So I ask you, each of you, what does your heart want? Because the battle is coming. The battle is here. The season is upon us. Today, my friends, I bring warning and encouragement. A warning to say that the spirit of Amalek came against the tired, the weary, and the lukewarm of God's people. He attacked them from behind when their defenses were down, and he sought to turn their minds from what they had been commanded. You've been warned. But be encouraged, because when Moses raised the Lord's staff in submission to the Most High God, God caused them to prevail. If we would only be willing then God would help us to overcome every spirit of the enemy. I want to turn to one last passage to close. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1346. Ephesians 5, page 1346. My prayer for us today comes from Ephesians 5. I'll read verses 8 through 14. Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and the Lord will give you light. Amen. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee.
Hey.